Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 29, Huntsman. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today's episode takes us back to the early Middle Ages, or Dark Ages, as they're sometimes called to explore a saint who encountered God in the wilderness and was never the same. This is the patron saint of hunters, St. Hubert. Hubert was born the son of a Frankish duke around the year 656. The Franks, as you may know, were a tribe of Germanic barbarians who had conquered the Roman province of Gaul in the 5th century the region that we now call France, in their honor. They would become the ancestors of the modern French as they intermarried with the Roman subjects they'd conquered. The Franks had dwelt in what we now call France for several hundred years by Hubert's day, under the rule of a bloody and warlike royal family known as the Merovingians, the descendants of a legendary hero named Merovech. These Merovingian Franks had been Christian since their arrival in France several hundred years earlier, starting first as Arian heretics who denied the full divinity of Christ, but eventually converting to the Catholic faith under their greatest king, Clovis, in the 5th century AD. But their Christianity, for all its civilizing influence on the culture of the Franks, did not put an end to their barbarian politics. Bloodshed, brutality, and betrayal remained the surest paths to power in the Merovingian realm. This was, after all, the Dark Ages. King Clovis himself had never quite grasped the teachings of Christianity about forgiveness, mercy, and peace among men. In one story, for example, he was asked by a bishop to return a golden vase that one of his warriors had plundered from a church during one of the raids of the Franks. Clovis agreed, sought out the warrior, and ordered him to hand over the vase. But the warrior refused, on the grounds that ancient Frankish custom gave the king only a certain share of the spoils of war, and no more. Clovis couldn't just demand whatever he wanted from his warriors. This made perfect sense to the Franks, who, like all Germanic barbarian tribes of the age, saw their kings as only the first among equals, the leaders of warriors of the tribe, not as absolute sovereigns over their people. And so the argument between Clovis and the warrior got heated, very heated. So heated that at last the warrior, in a fit of rage, destroyed the vase with an axe, preferring to have nothing at all than to hand over his prize to the king. So Clovis backed down, 
and brooded. Until the next time he met that warrior, at an inspection of arms and armor, in front of all the other Frankish nobles. Strolling down the ranks of his army, with a battle-axe in his hands, Clovis paused when he got to the warrior who had denied him the golden vase, only to hack off his head with the axe. In another tale, Clovis was listening to that same bishop who had requested the stolen vase preach about the life of Christ. As he sat hearing the story, the king became more and more agitated, until finally, when the bishop arrived at the crucifixion, Clovis sprang to his feet and shouted, Had I been there with my brave Franks, I would have avenged his wrongs. Even if he rather missed the point of the story, I have to say there's something charming about that fierce barbarian loyalty. But the mighty King Clovis had been dead for centuries by the time St. Hubert was born. In the intervening years, the power of the Merovingian kings had waned to a flicker of its former fire. After hundreds of years of civil wars, family feuds, backstabbing intrigues, assassinations, plots, coups, power grabs, and conspiracies within the ruthless royal family, it had become clear to the other Frankish nobles that the heirs of Marovetch and Clovis were no longer fit to rule the realm of their fathers. And so, after the death of their last effective king, Dagobert I, the Merovingians found their rule usurped by an oligarchy of Frankish landlords who carved up the kingdom between themselves. At the head of this ruling clique was a bureaucrat known as the mayor of the palace, formerly the steward of the king's household, but really more like a prime minister serving the interests of the other great lords. The Merovingians themselves continued to reign, but not to rule. They were allowed to keep their crowns, their thrones, and their titles as kings, but they were kept very far away from real political power. Hence this period, which lasted from the middle of the 7th century through the middle of the 8th, is called the Age of the Do-Nothing Kings. Les Rois Fanéants in French. As you can probably guess, the era of the do-nothing kings was a time of corruption and misrule on a grand scale in the realm of the Franks. For the mayors of the palace and their shadow governments were hidden from the public eye. They were, in other words, completely unaccountable. The mayors would wheel out their puppet kings on special occasions, quite literally wheeling them out on a decorated ox cart, to put on the show of being kings, to carry out ceremonies, to sign official documents, like the King of Britain does today, conferring a stamp of legitimacy on an utterly illegitimate regime. But all decision-making power lay with the mayors and their fellow oligarchs, who were shielded from all responsibility by the fiction 
that they weren't in charge. Writing several generations after this regime had come to an end, the Frankish historian Einhard, biographer of the Emperor Charlemagne, described the age of the do-nothing kings this way. Quotes, There was nothing left for the king to do but to be content with his name of king, his flowing hair and long beard, to sit on his throne and play the ruler, to give ear to the ambassadors that came from all quarters, and to dismiss them, as if on his own responsibility. In words that were, in fact, suggested to him, or even imposed upon him. He had nothing that he could call his own, beyond this vain title of king, and the precarious supports allowed by the mayor of the palace in his discretion, except a single country seat that brought him but a very small income. End quote. Deprived of any real purpose beyond putting on a show for the people, the do-nothing kings soon degenerated into useless idlers who whiled away their lives on their little country estates in the vain pursuit of pleasure. As, too, did many of the great lords, the oligarchs, who had divided up the now kingless kingdom. Immorality was rife among the Frankish nobility. Alongside heavy drinking, gluttonous feasting, and shameless philandering with their concubines, the favorite pastime of the elites was hunting. Of course, there's nothing wrong with hunting in itself, but it starts to look pretty frivolous when you realize it was all made possible by the labor of millions of peasants and slaves who lived in endless poverty and were often made to bear the brunt of their master's squabbling wars. This was a very poor time in the history of Europe. The economic boom of the later Middle Ages that would make possible the building of the great Gothic cathedrals and the rise of courtly literature and music and so on was all centuries away at this time. Into this age of decadence was born a child named Hubert around the year 656. He was, as we said at the start, the son of a duke in the south of France, and the grandson of a do-nothing king. Thus, following his noble pedigree, Huberts grew up to be a typical debauchee, a gentleman of pleasure, not a man of great purpose, pursuing the vain high life of a courtier in service to a mayor of the palace. With his charismatic demeanor, he excelled at court politics, being lavished with honors as one of the mayor's companions, and eventually marrying the daughter of a count. So how did this dissolute boy become a saint? Well, the turn has quite a tale. One day, when Hubert was in his twenties, he went riding in the forest of Ardennes, northeast of Paris, for a hunt. It would have been a typical day in the life of a Frankish lordling, save only one thing. That day was Good Friday. While pious Christians were flocking to church 
on the most solemn day of the year, Hubert was out in the woods, enjoying a merry time alone. That was when he saw it. A vision that would change his life forever. Riding into a forest clearing, Hubert suddenly beheld a great white stag that seemed to glow in the gloomy woods. Between its antlers burned a pale cross, and into Hubert's mind there came a voice. Hubert, unless you turn to the Lord and lead a holy life, you shall soon go down to hell. Stricken down from the saddle in fear, Hubert fell flat on the ground before the vision and asked, Lord, what would you have me do? The divine voice replied, Go and seek Lambert, and he will instruct you. As the vision cleared away and Hubert rose to his feet, he knew that the Lambert in question was the Bishop of Maastricht, a nearby town in the Netherlands. Hubert set out to find this bishop, journeying north into the Low Countries to seek his spiritual guide, and upon his arrival in Maastricht, he received a warm welcome from Lamberts, who took him under his instruction and began to form him in the faith. While he was staying with Bishop Lamberts, Hubert learned that his wife, the daughter of the Counts, had passed away. As much as this must have wounded Hubert's, he seems to have taken it as a sign that he was to set aside all the remnants of his old life, including those he loved, and enter holy orders. So Hubert entrusted his lands, his titles, and even his infant son to the care of his younger brother, renouncing all claim to worldly power. He gave all his wealth to the poor, and from that moment on, he dedicated himself completely to the service of God. Under Lambert's tutelage, Hubert was ordained a priest, and soon became the bishop's right-hand man in leading the local church. This was a dangerous task, for the swamps and forests around Maastricht still had many pockets of pagan worship where wild men yet prayed to the old Germanic gods, Woden, Thor, and the rest. And these heathens did not take kindly to the ministries of Christian priests. On top of that, as we've already seen, the nobility of the Christian Franks, who ruled the area, were not exactly Christian in their everyday behavior. These lords were especially anxious to silence churchmen who condemned their sinful ways, their murders, their debaucheries, their keeping of concubines, even if that meant killing priests to shut them up. Eventually, Bishop Lambert himself fell afoul of the elites for condemning the lifestyle of a mayor of the palace named Pepin. Incidentally, this Pepin was the father of the more famous Charles Martel, the warrior who would later halt the advance of Islam into Europe at the Battle of Tours. 
Mayor Pepin, like many a Frankish lord before him, had set aside his lawful wife to live in sin with a mistress, a woman named Alpiada, the mother of Charles Martel. When Lambert enjoined Pepin to give up this concubine, Pepin had the bishop murdered, along with his two nephews who tried to defend him. Widely seen as a martyr for Christian virtue, Lambert would go on to be known as Saint Lambert. His remains were laid to rest by his loyal friend Hubert in Liège Cathedral, where they would stay until that church's destruction by French revolutionaries more than a thousand years later. After Lambert's death, Hubert himself was appointed bishop in his place and spent the rest of his life caring for the spiritual needs of his people, without compromising the truths of the Christian faith. He proved especially zealous in preaching to the heathens who dwelt in the Ardennes, that same wild forest where he had received his vision of the stag. Though he is said to have sought martyrdom in these missions, knowing that the woodland folk had little love for his message, Hubert's would not die a violent death. Instead, he passed away in peace at the Belgian village of Tervuren. He was over the age of seventy, and had spent his long and successful life preaching the word to the pagans. By the end of Hubert's life, virtually the whole region had been converted to Christianity. We are told that Hubert learned of his approaching death in a vision, giving him time to deliver one last sermon to his flock. Then he fell ill, and soon after died. His final words were the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven. After his death, Hubert gained a reputation as an effective miracle worker, and was venerated locally as a saint in the Low Countries. He had died sometime around the year 727, and when, nearly a century after his death, his tomb was opened, his body was found to be incorruptible. Thereafter, his reputation as a great saint spread across Europe, and he left many legacies to the wider Christian faithful. Most famously, of course, he became the patron saint of hunters, and became associated with the healing of those who worked with animals. A popular and effective remedy for rabies, for example, was named St. Hubert's Key. This was a sacramental, normally taking the form of an iron key or cross or nail, which the victim of an animal bites would heat until it was glowing hot, and then used to cauterize the wound, killing the rabies virus. While, of course, the medical reasoning was not understood at the time, this was actually one of the most effective ways to prevent rabies before the invention of vaccines. Little wonder, then, that it lasted all through the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and well into the modern era, and received the blessing of the Church, as both a popular remedy for a real disease and a pious devotion to a great saint. Another legacy of St. Hubert's is the notion of ethical hunting, 
often attributed to him. Numerous organizations of hunters around the world are named in his honor. Most famously, the International Order of St. Hubertus, which was founded by Austrian and Bohemian huntsmen several hundred years ago, but is still around today as a wildlife conservation charity. And in his homeland of France, there is to this day a kind of chivalric code for hunters known as the chasse à cour, which involves showing compassion for the animals one is hunting, for example, never killing a mother deer with her young. So we can also regard the humane treatment of animals as one of the greatest legacies of St. Hubert the Hunter. St. Hubert's is commemorated on the 3rd of November in the Catholic Church and in Eastern Orthodoxy. He is, of course, the patron of hunters, but also, for various reasons, of mathematicians, metalworkers, and opticians. If you'd like to find out more about this saint, and perhaps deepen your own devotion to him, you'll find links to prayers and other resources in the show notes, as always. There, you'll also find links to our Patreon, where you can support the show, and to my email, where you can offer your own suggestions for future episodes. May St. Hubert, who so loved the natural world that he found God through his creatures, come to our aid now and always, for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.